And so here we are in 1 Samuel 25. I encourage you to follow along there on the screen as we read the scriptures or there in your Bibles. There's also an outline for you to jot down if you'd like to in your worship guide. It is a lengthy passage of scripture, but every time I have tried to speed through it or pick it up during the preaching, I have been flustered in doing so. So if you'll bear with me, I need to read all of these verses for my own teaching benefit, and then we'll come together to it. 1 Samuel 25, then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented over him and buried him at his home in Ramah, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man, he was harsh and evil in his doings. He was also of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel. Go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus shall you say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, your shepherds, here with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal, according to all these words in the name of David, and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and About 400 men went with David. 200 stayed behind with the supplies. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot even speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. I guess there was... No need for a natural uh, laxative after that meal. (laughs) 
And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I'm, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her. And she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him and he has repaid me evil for good may God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light now when Abigail saw David she dismounted quickly from the donkey fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. I guess Nabal and Abigail are way beyond the needs of marital counseling at this point. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling, She seems to know her history. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel is, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice, and respected your person. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, his heart died within him. And he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. 
I guess the raisin cakes were good. <laughs> when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey attended by five of her maidens and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoham of Jezreel and so both of them were his wives. For Saul had given Michael or Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galam. I've entitled this message tonight, God's Preventive Grace. God's Preventive Grace. There's something that just unfolds so clearly for me in the chapter of 1 Samuel 25. It's, it's a theological word that we use to describe the ways of God. It's, it's, it's the word providence. Providence. In fact, if you want to jot this down in your notes, here's a little uh, biblical definition of providence. Providence is the mysterious way. The mysterious way in which God provides for his people and their needs. You, you kind of see that in the word providence, providence, pro, provides, providence. It's, it's the mysterious way, the, the mysterious way that God provides for his people and for their needs. This is what we look back in our life and say, wow, look at what God providentially allowed or look at what God providentially prevented to provide exactly what we needed as a family exactly what I was in need of as his child that's providence providence now first Samuel 25 focuses on the preventive layer of God's providence that is, his grace at, at times works providentially to prevent disasters in our lives. And sometimes his grace works providentially to restrain us from acting out in foolishness or even more foolishness than perhaps we've already done. One common Dale Ralph Davies is his name. He's from Australia. Here's, here's what he said about 1 Samuel 25. He said, the text teaches us how God rescues his people from their own stupidity. How he restrains them from executing their sinful purposes. And how he sometimes graciously and firmly intercepts us on the road to folly. Our chapter opens up with an odd way of describing a major moment in a key figure's life. I, I don't know if you picked up on that a moment ago because we hadn't heard about Samuel in a while. And now we open up to verse 1, chapter 25, and here's how it begins. Then Samuel died. Then Samuel died. Again, we haven't seen very much from Samuel, heard very much from Samuel since he privately anointed David to be the next king of Israel all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But now we hear in a rather odd way that he has, that he has died. Of course, that's all that we see about him. His obituary was brief, but of course his legacy was not. So it is no surprise here that Verse 1 says, all Israel gathered together and lamented for him. 
And I read that and I'm thinking to myself, did that include Saul? Did Saul go and lament and mourn over the passing of Samuel? We certainly know David did. Because it says in verse 1 that after Samuel's burial, David goes down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, we're not told what happened with David in the wilderness of Paran, but it is left to assume that this was his needed time alone, to mourn the death of his friend, something that all of us who have gone through seasons of grief and mourning, we we just need some time to ourselves. For David, in the most stressful moment of his life, he loses someone that he admires. This was his friend. This is the one who anointed him. And now he's gone. David has escaped to the wilderness of Paran. Again, alone, it appears here, to mourn. It's right after verse 1 in that odd, brief description of Samuel's death that we're introduced to two new characters in the story of David. 25 chapters in, and we've not seen anything about these two individuals. And it's mentioned to us who they are in verses 2 and 3. The first one is Nabal. Nabal. He's a very rich businessman, according to verse 2, who happened to work in Carmel. Carmel, this is the same Mount Carmel, by which Elijah rained down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal. So he's working in this this region of Carmel. He is described for us in verses 2 and 3 as a harsh man and one who was evil in all of his behavior. In fact, his first name in Hebrew actually means fool, fool. He's a fool. We see that a little bit. From the story, I I told you about a commentator, Dale Ralph Davies. I don't know why it's so hard for me to say his full name, but I gave you a quote from him a moment ago. In in continuing to read his commentary, uh, Mr. Davies alluded to the fact that Nabal was a mule head, a mule head. I don't know if that's another uh, uh, vulgar term in Australia for what we might would call the man here in the United States of America, but either way, he's a fool, all right? He's a fool. In fact, when you read Old Testament language, like in the book of Psalms where it says, the fool has said in his heart, that's exactly the Hebrew word that is used there. The Nabal has said in his heart, there is no God. His name identifies who he is, a harsh man, an evil man, a fool. And then we're immediately introduced to his wife, Abigail, the wife of Nabal. In the very contrasting way, she is not described at all like her husband. In fact, she's described as simply smart and beautiful. Her name could have meant Kathleen there. She's described as smart and beautiful. These are the two new characters, Nabal and Abigail. And the question is, what do these two individuals have to do with David? We've read the text already, but let's just walk through it together as we think about God's preventing grace. Uh, three things that just helps me out, nothing fancy, but something I can give you as a form of an outline of the passage. Number one, we see a reasonable request, a reasonable request. And we see this request in verses 1 through 13. So as we're reading here, we, we discover that between verses 1 and 2, it appears that a, a lot has happened between Samuel's death and David being in the wilderness and the introduction of these new characters. For during that period of time, some of Nabal's shepherds and their sheep had been served with kindness and generosity by David and his men while they were together in the wilderness. 
The text even seems to indicate that David and his men had assisted Nabal's shepherds, even protected them. The the young servant came back to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and said, look, they did us no harm. In fact, they formed a wall around us and protected us at night from any enemy. After all, I find it fascinating that David would do this for these random shepherds that he met because what was it that God called him out of to do this great work that he's doing? He called him out of the sheepfolds. That's what David was raised to be, a shepherd. So perhaps David used uh, this experience that he had and took some time to, to mentor Nabal's shepherds, even though he didn't know Nabal. I had never met him. These shepherds were out in the field, and David decides in kindness and generosity that he would assist them, help them, and protect them for a distinct period of time. Again, the text implies here that some type of friendship had formed between David and his men and these shepherds who were employees of Nabal. But David and his men were in need, and they... The Bible says that Nabal here was a very, very wealthy man. So it's only reasonable to think that Nabal would have a whole lot to spare and could be of some assistance to the needs of David and his men. So what David decides to do, since he has built this friendship with Nabal's employees, his shepherds, he chooses to send 10 of his men up to Carmel to seek Nabal and kindly and reasonably ask for food. And the whole approach by David was one of peacefulness. He was not bullying them. He was not manipulating them, that there's no guilt involved here. In fact, look at verse number six. David says, here's what I want you to tell Nabal when you go to meet him. Thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity. Go go tell the rich man, peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace to all you have. David's intentions were nothing but peace here. It was a reasonable request. He's asking for the leftovers of a very wealthy man, and it was done in a, in a peaceful manner. Nabal's response, however, was not so peaceful. Verse 10 tells us that Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? In other words, who does David think he is? I don't care about any son of Jesse. There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Again, now now he's implying that David is responsible for what's going on between him and Saul. And notice how selfish Nabal is. Verse 11, shall I then take my bread, my water, my meat that I have killed for my shares and give them to men that I don't know? Let me tell you something. Nabal knew exactly who David was but he refused him any kindness. He was so foolishly wrapped up in his own self and his own riches that it didn't matter who was asking for it. Who cares that it's the next king of Israel, God's anointed one? Who cares that David's having to run for his life because Saul is unjustly trying to kill him? Who cares that he's done all of these things for my employees? I'm not helping him with my stuff. Now, David's reaction to the news was what we would call a quick escalation. Things escalate very quickly. Look at it in verse 13. Then David said to his men, all right, guys, everybody go get your swords. Everybody go get your swords. 
His courtesy and kindness have been despised and insulted by Nabal. And we don't have to wonder what he's thinking by telling his men to go get their swords. We know exactly what he's thinking. He went from a few moments later, he went from saying, peace, 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 get out of here in a minute, to now a few moments later saying, sword, sword, sword. He's ticked. He's angry. It's like when you get up in the morning and you think, I'm having a pretty good day. I've had my two or three cups of coffee and, and uh, I'm getting out on the road. I'm on my way to work. And all it takes is that one guy to cut you off and you're ticked. David meant no ill by his request. It was a reasonable request. But Nabal, Nabal, however, had provoked David's sinful nature. He's angry. And the first thing that comes to his mind is grab your swords. We're going to go chop us off some heads. Verse 21, surely in vain, David says, I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all the belongings to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. Well, may God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. I'm going to wipe out all the men in Nabal's household. He's angry. In fact, in the original Hebrew, his language here in verse 21, it had a, it had a vulgar edge to it. And some translations speak to that. Very vulgar in nature what David is saying. It's actually a very interesting reaction by David when you think about what just happened in chapter 24. You were with us last week. You'll be reminded that this is the same guy who nearly fell to pieces emotionally and spiritually when he simply cut the corner off of Saul's robe. Back in the cave of Engedi, he had every opportunity to strike vengeance against Saul right there, but he refused to do it. Cutting off the robe and messed him up so much that he just... He yielded it to God. And you understand the story if you were there with us last week. If not, go back and listen to it. He spared his life. But now, with Nabal, he's ready to put him and all his servants to death. I think it says to me just how inconsistent we all can be in our Christian life. And maybe I'm just speaking to myself this morning or this evening. But success in the cave of Engedi doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be success in the fields of Carmel. Success in this interaction at work doesn't mean that there's going to be success in that interaction at home. We're inconsistent, aren't we? We're up and down, back and forth, doing good one moment Blowing it the next. Kindness to Saul on David's part obviously did not automatically mean that, that he was going to be kind in a ball. For something far less, actually. It reminds me of just how we all must continually be sober and vigilant. Daily putting on the armor of God. Daily putting it on. Daily dressing in it. For like we see here with David, the best of men are men at best. Don't forget in all the imagery, David 
pointing us to Jesus, but that's all he is doing. He is pointing us to Jesus. He's not Jesus. Flesh and bones just like us. Failures just like us. He gets angry just like, you may not be carrying a sword around, but I guarantee you there's been a few times you've wanted to knock your neighbor in the head. We look at David, we're thinking, man, we're just a little bit surprised that he would act like this. I think maybe you would be surprised at the way that I act sometimes. I think I'd be surprised at the way some of you act sometimes. But why should we be surprised? We're sinners. We're inconsistent. We're up and down. We're patient with the kids one hour and ready to ship them off the next. It's true. And your boys were here to hear that. The best of men are men at best. Don't admire me. I'm a man who gets angry, who faces temptations, who battles with the same struggles that you do. And one moment, I feel like I'm handling it well, and the next moment... I feel like I've just made a royal mess of everything. We, whether you agree or not, have the propensity for failure, inconsistency, and downright foolishness and stupidity. And that's how David is acting. Now, it was a reasonable request. He did nothing wrong by what he asked. But his reaction, his reaction to Nabal's foolishness has put him on a path to foolishness himself. All right, write down number two, a providential encounter. A providential encounter. That covers verses 14 through 35. And this is where our theme comes alive. For, for God, in his timely providence, restrains. I love this. He restrains his chosen king from his own impulsive folly. He restrains him from engaging in some sinful behavior himself. And what we see in this encounter is God's gift of preventive grace. Preventive grace. David not even being aware of what God is orchestrating. God is giving him grace, restraining him, holding him back, keeping him of making a mess of everything. The first gift of providence is found in a young servant. It's easy to go straight to Abigail, and we'll get to her in just a moment. But let's not forget how the whole thing started. It started because of an observant servant. Verse 14 says, now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled him. Nabal did. Nabal mistreated him. But I want you to know, Abigail, they, they did nothing wrong. They were very good to us, verse 15. And we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us. They protected us night and day all the time that we were there. Now, therefore, verse 17, know and consider what you will do. For harm is now determined against our master, against Nabal, and against all of us. And he speaks the truth about what kind of man his boss is. He says in verse 17, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot even speak to him. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy that's such a scoundrel, so foolish that one can even speak to me. That's his reputation. His employees say that about him. So Abigail comes up with a quick plan in a hurry. And everything she does in this chapter is obviously in a hurry. 
But in this amazing hurry, she prepares a meal for hundreds of men. It's quite fascinating. I don't know how she did it, ladies. But it's worth considering if you ever open up a restaurant, perhaps calling it Abigail's. Because the food came quick. This is amazing. And she did all of it without Nabal even finding out. That's the first gift of providence. But the second gift of providence is is Abigail herself. As she's preparing this meal, she loads up some donkeys and heads toward David and his men in hopes to intercept them on the way, to meet them, to, 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 to somehow provide a roadblock to David's fury. And she does. She's aware of David's intentions. It got back to her. Perhaps the same young servant had, had went back to her to, to tell her exactly what David said about destroying all the males in the house. So when she sees David, she immediately jumps off of her donkey, falls on her face to the ground, and shows him proper reverence. After all, he's the anointed new king of Israel. She asks for the punishment to be put on her, though she had nothing to do with it. She calls him Lord, my Lord, let this iniquity be put on me. She acknowledges the foolishness of her husband and how he's not even worth paying attention to. Hey, don't, don't pay any attention to my husband. My husband's a fool. Fool is his name and fool is his game. He's a fool. He acts like one, talks like one, lives like one. Please, please don't pay my husband any attention. And then she allows David to consider the providence of God of her being there. Because look at verse 26. She says to him, now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back. What is she implying? God has sent me here. God is doing this. This message for you through me is, now, now, did Abigail hold him back? Yes, but God held him back. God held him back. Abigail held him back. That's how the mystery of the providence of God works. God uses Abigail and her ingenuity and her quick raisin cake making and her pleading and her spirituality to cause a roadblock in David's life. And she wants him to consider how all of this is the providence of God. As the Lord lives, as your soul lives, as the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand. God sent me here to stop you from doing this, David. She, she then offers the food that she has prepared, and then she affirms That he, David, is the Lord's anointed. The reason she's there is because he's the Lord's anointed. And he, or she rather, wants him not to allow this mark, this scar, to be on his life as the incoming king of Israel. She closes the whole speech out with, David, just let the Lord deal with it. Let the Lord deal with it. It's remarkable to me, the whole conversation, because it appears to me it's not so much a desire on her part to spare her full of a husband as much as it is to keep David from making a big mistake. God is still taking David through his training course, if you will. This whole episode with him and Saul, it's about God preparing David to be the king he wants David to be. It's much like we see in the life of Moses. 
Before Moses ever gets to lead the people, he has to spend 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years. 40 years just learning about how foolish he was and how sinful he was and how much he needed God. David's in a training course. And for David to reign as God's king, he had to be one who learned to trust God. And a part of trusting God, church, we understand this to be true, is learning not to take vengeance into our own hands. So this is the lesson that God needs him to learn. If you're going to be my king, you cannot take vengeance in your own hands. You've got to let me take care of it. So Abigail, with her providential encounter, had been placed in David's path that day for that very purpose. A divine encounter. Friends, I, I don't know about you, but I am so grateful for the many, many times God has put an Abigail in my path. The many times where maybe even the temptation was there and I didn't even know it. The many times that I could have done far worse than was already being cooked up in my mind. You see, that's how the providence of God works. Sometimes we know when God has sent this person in our lives. And then sometimes years later we, we get to thinking about it and we look back and we see, man... God did that. God put me right there in that place with those people for such a time as to keep me from bloodshed, so to speak. Oh, you ought to thank God in your life, church family, for the Abigails. Providence of God. You see, God's preventive grace through Abigail stopped David in his tracks. It worked. Verse 32 says, then David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. It's as if he's saying, gosh, what was I thinking? You're right. You're right. How foolish. He thanks her for her advice, for allowing God to use her to keep him from shedding blood and avenging himself with his own hands. And then in verse 35, he receives her gifts and he tells her, to go in peace to your house, for I have heeded your voice and respected your person. There it is again, the inconsistent nature of our Christian life, isn't it? It's why we need God's providential roadblocks. It's why we need our husbands, our wives, people we don't even know, people in our church family who will occasionally, whether they know what they're doing or not, give us the roadblock that we need from walking into danger. Because peace was his intention all along. But he allowed somebody else to appeal to a sinful nature, causing anger to spew out of his mouth in a vulgar way to now when God providentially gets his attention from ruining the kingship before it ever gets started, he's back where he needed to be. Peace again. <laughs> Peace again. This is the restraining, preventive grace of God. In his providence, God kept David from making a big mistake. You had some people in your life keep you from making a big mistake? If you're paying attention, I think we'd all say that. But this is, this is 
flooded in the passage. Verse 26, the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed. Verse 33, you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed. Verse 34, the Lord has kept me back from hurting you. Verse 39, blessed be the Lord who has kept his servant from evil. He acknowledges what we need to acknowledge on a daily basis. The preventive grace of God. The mysterious providence of God who orchestrates all things. At times, for the purpose of restraining us. Well, sometimes, for his other purposes, he lets us go. And we all have regrets from the moment that he let us go. We've learned through those things. We are learning through those things. But think about all the regrets that you have for the times God let you go, make a mess of things, and what he's taught you then. And then start thinking about how many times he kept you from making a big mistake that you don't even know you were going to make. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Let me give you this last one, and we'll be finished. And again, it's not a fancy outline. It's nothing fancy like Applebee's or anything like that. So I just wrote down number three, the Lord took care of it. The Lord took care of it. It's the best I could come up with. The Lord took care of it. Verse 36 to 44, Abigail returns home. She finds her husband living up to his name. Fool, Nabal. He's throwing a party. He's drunk out of his mind. So drunk she can't even have a conversation with him. So she waits until morning, until the wine wears off. And when the wine wears off and... He can actually have a conversation. She begins to tell him everything that had happened. And it was at that moment, verse 37 says, that Nabal's heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then verse 38 says, after about 10 days, that the Lord struck him, and he died. Apparently, Nabal experiences some type of stroke-like experience or coma-like experience. Something happened to him 10 days prior to this death that caused him to be unconscious for 10 days before God eventually took his life. Think about it. The reason he's dead is because of how he mistreated the anointed king of Israel. The reason he died was because of what he said, what he did, how he acted to God's Anointed authority. And that which David was impulsively seeking to handle himself, God in his justice, however he sees it, in his justice, he takes care of it. He takes care of it. It's important to remember that David was God's anointed one. And Nabal's foolish behavior was more than an insult to a man named David. It was an insult against God's anointed And it's in these situations where God and God alone has the right to deal with the enemies of God's anointed, however he deems just. And you may look at this and say, man, it's it's a pretty harsh response from God. We be careful with how we determine the righteous efforts of God's justice. Because the truth of the matter is there's not one of us in here tonight that deserve his grace on any level. We want to take about what we deserve We all deserve to be struck dead by God. God viewed Nabal's behavior as an affront to the very holiness of God, especially when it came against his anointed one. And in God's righteous judgment, he deserved death. 
chapter ends with David rejoicing in God's preventive grace, and then David decides to propose to Abigail. Again, she evidently made a big impression on him, perhaps the meal, perhaps the prayers, the raisins were like he had never had before. Whatever it was, he proposes to her. He also takes another wife, Ahinoam. Now, let me just say, this is not the time to discuss polygamy. I don't have enough time to do that. Other than we never see in Scripture, even though it is prominent, we never see it actually permitted by God in the sense of Him being pleased with it. And it probably deserves a topical session on another time. But we're only just pointing out tonight David's actions. He took two to be his wife. So what about Michal or Michael, his first wife? You know, after all, he's, he's the son-in-law of King Saul, the one who's trying to knock his head off. Well, the verse tells us there in verse 44 that Saul, because of his opposition to David, at some point during this period of time in which David is on the run, chose to give his daughter to another man. So essentially, what the Bible is saying here is that she left David. She left David. And we'll see her bitterness and anger toward David wanting or receiving the throne that God had given him in opposition to his father later on in our study. But let's not miss the point of the chapter. If you go home talking about the polygamy, you have missed the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is this. And I just want to read it as I wrote it. God is so gracious to stoop down and show us our inconsistency. And when we are headed down a path of major foolishness. That's what I take from it. How gracious, gracious, kind God is to stoop down from heaven and restrain me and prevent me from making a big mistake. We need all of his grace, don't we? And his grace is multifaceted. We could talk about his common grace, common grace being the everyday common gifts that we enjoy, the, a car, a, a house, a, a, a game of golf. You know, these are all God's common graces to us. We could talk about his sovereign grace and how that he overrules the events of this. We could talk about his persevering grace, his saving grace, and yes, as we've discussed tonight, his preventive grace. When you think about his grace in relation to stories like this that we have before us tonight, no wonder we call it simply... Amazing grace. Amazing grace. And perhaps that's what we need to pause and do. Is take a moment and thank God for the Abigails, whoever they were, however God put them in our path. The Abigails that we know. And then thank God for the many roadblocks, the many Abigails that we don't even realize that God brought into our lives at just the right time to keep us, to keep us from ruining it all. This is the marvelous, amazing, restraining grace of God. Let's stand together for prayer.